John 17. That's where we'll be this morning as we continue back with our series in the Gospel of John, which we've entitled, Seeing and Savoring the Son of God. We'll do that today from John 17, right where we left off at the end of May. It's good to see you all back, and as you turn, I just want to offer a few uh, encouragements. I don't get to say this enough, but it's a joy to, to serve here, to be here, and I think that God has given our church many wins of late. Uh, some are really obvious, some go a little unseen. Uh, I'm grateful for the win of the body caring for one another and grieving with one another. We had a brother pass away uh, this past week, James Casola, and not many people knew him. He was new. He'd only been here a couple years. Health prevented him from being a major part. And yet to go to a funeral service and see a bunch of people who probably otherwise wouldn't have known him that well outside of church just show up and to weep with his existing family members I thought was a beautiful expression of the gospel. Thank you for one another care. Uh, in a way like that. I think we sometimes just underestimate the, the habit of just showing up, uh, like how powerful uh, that can be. I'm grateful for uh, women in our church wanting to serve one another. I know that 40 of them gathered Friday night at Kelly's house just to get together. And that was an attempt to be organized, and yet at the same time we recognize that that happens outside of organized context too. And it just takes a heart to want to reach out to others. And I realize that being a mom or a wife or a woman in this world can be a lonely place. And I pray that that would continue in our church. And another uh, thing that I'm encouraged about, and we'll get into John 17, it's, it's good to see some of our members back who went over to serve at Orange Tree and have returned uh, to be back to serve at our church. They they broke off uh, from us for a couple months to just pour their lives into another place. And now they're back with us. I'm grateful for those of you who went out to do that. We were praying for you, and we're glad you're back with us today. John 17, we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 5 for our study this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. May I just be painfully transparent with you for a moment? I mean, truly, not the kind of transparency that makes you look good, but the kind that's just frankly embarrassing. As I read through a text like this on a Sunday morning with so many gathered, I have to confess something. I am totally out of my debts. Verses like this are above my pay grade. 
Seriously. Read through these verses and tell me you know exactly what's going on. You know it's important. You know it's holy. You know it's sacred. You know it's meaningful. You know it's impactful. But it is so hard to get what it's actually saying. I was reading this with one of my sons earlier in the week, and I asked him, I said, do you have any idea what this is? He's like, no, I don't. I'm like, I don't either. <laughs> I'm not alone, by the way. Some of you appreciate the, um, the late expositor R.C. Sproul. He said of this particular text that it is a church-emptying text. He said it is a true test of those committed to sequential exposition. Because admittedly, as a, as a preacher, you know that people are saying stuff like, man, I've got real needs, I've got real problems, I hope that you're going to give me something this week that's going to help me make my week better. And then you come to something like this and it seems so abstract, so big, so lofty, so like up there in the clouds that it can't be that helpful. There's even things in here that are controversial and that hurt people's feelings. And so he says it's a true test because you'd be tempted to skip to the parts of the prayer in John 17 that have to do with you. These 26 verses and throughout the whole prayer have been the inspiration of massive works. Uh, Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, Thomas Manton, preached 45 sermons on John 17. About 20 years later, another contemporary expositor on uh, the Isle of uh, Great Britain actually spent 41 sermons, and both the guys together, like when, if you put their, their, their books together, where they published these sermons on John 17, both of the books are over 500 pages. <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot here, and yet we recognize that it's important, it's heavy, you, you can hear it. Like when I'm reading this, you know, it, what it kind of sounds like to me is like, if you've ever heard two doctors speaking to one another in the hallway of a hospital, and they're speaking in a really grave and serious tone, and they're using some like really fancy medical terminology, you don't know what they're saying, you just know whatever they're saying is really, really important. Or maybe, maybe you've read a legal document with your name on the top of it, and you've been summoned to something or you've been charged with something and you start reading through this and you realize this is high and lofty language. This is really heavy. It is really important. It is really serious. It is really scary. But I don't know exactly what it says. I think John 17, if we're honest, strikes us in a similar way. Like none of us would be so as irreverent to think that, oh, well, this doesn't matter. We know that it matters. It, it, is, it is Jesus himself speaking to his Father. Like this is insight into the eternal trinity and the way that they feel and think about one another as persons. And, and yet we don't, we don't get it immediately. We don't know how this translates into our to-do list this week. But I think that um, if you would allow me, I, I'd like to upfront preview for you how a passage like John 17, 1 through 5 should be impacting you as we go through it. 
It will inform your mind, it will inform your will, but I think more than anything, it will inflame your heart. Your heart, your affections. That which you, you love. And do we not all need our hearts to be more captivated with Jesus than they have been? I worry about this as a, as a father. I worry about this as a, as a husband. I, I worry about this as just an individual follower of Jesus. And that is this. I worry about sometimes like what's capturing my imagination. I worry about where my heart goes. Just a few weeks ago, I got really captivated with some show, some series of something on some streaming service. And what concerns you know what that's like? Like you can't wait to see the next episode? And what concerned me is I was so concerned about whatever the next episode was. Like this was the thing, like I would think during the day, like I wonder what's going to happen with such and such. It had captured my heart. It had captured my imagination. When I saw that, I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And now I start seeing it everywhere. Like, we all have something that's just like grabbing our attention in these days. And so often, it's something other than Jesus. We had some young adults over to our house this past week. And um, I happened upon a table with uh, five young ladies who all like to read, they're introverted readers. And uh, so I asked them, you know, like what they were reading and they were telling me and everybody was excited. I was telling them what I was reading. And then I, I showed them this, this prayer that I have in this little book that you're supposed to pray before beginning a book. And uh, it applies to anything. If you're not a reader, but you like watching TV shows or you like listening to the news, like if you like being captivated by passive media every once in a while, this is a great way to pray. Just, just listen to this for a moment. Author of life and author of my life, as I begin the reading of this book or any form of entertainment or discretionary media, give me sensitivity to listen, not just to the story told, but to the responses of my own heart, to what I encounter in these pages. And then it asks all these questions. Listen to these. What does it draw out of me? What joy, what longing, what fears, what temptation, what hope, what mirth? What love of beauty, what awe, what wonder, what doubt, what faith, what resolve, what unfinished grief, what untended wound. Give me ears to hear, O Spirit of God, what notes the reading of this story would strike and what melody it would draw forth from the tuned strings of my own soul. You ever ask that about yourself? Like, what notes strike our imagination? You know, sympathetic resonance. Like if somebody were to play like a C on the guitar, like that C in the piano itself would begin to hum with it. Like what are the things that resonate with our soul when we are having our imaginations captured? What melody is most drawn forth from our heart? Are our hearts in... If you have heaven, who is none other than Jesus, that's the question that John 17 will help you with. If you battle with that, this will help. And here's why I say that, because John 17 in particular is further preparation for Jesus' death and departure. Now, 
Here's what he's done so far. In, in chapters 13 through 16, Jesus has sought to prepare all of his followers for his death and departure through instruction. We call it the farewell discourse. And it's truly a lecture. Like, it's a, it's a lesson. It's straight-up class. Like, Jesus is teaching. And what he does in John 17 is he prepares them for his death and departure not by, not by instruction, but by intercession. Through discourse, you get the head of a man. Through intercession, you see the heart of a man. Jesus opens up his heart. And he lets his followers know that, like, this is what's going on as I am about to undertake death and everything to follow. And let me tell you how that helps us. They were trying to figure out what's this death and departure thing all about. Here's how it helps us. It helps us as those who currently follow Jesus know what this death and departure thing is all about. Like, what was he up to? What was he trying to do? What was his ultimate aim? It's insight into the heart of our Lord. There is no more private a place than a man's prayers. This shows us what drove our Lord to leave heaven, to die in the place of sinners. This is the heart. And um, what I want you to to get, especially as you you try to, to comprehend what's going on in these several verses, is that this is a pre-cross prayer, pre-cross prayer. Often it's called the high priestly prayer. Even in my little uh, Bible here, it says high priestly prayer. I don't think that's the best term. Jesus' priestly intercession is something that he does in heaven even now. He hasn't actually done the atoning work yet. This is just Jesus' prayer. Prayer before he dies. Here's how he prays before he dies. And it's kind of organized in a very um, macro, structural way, like a way that's pretty easy to follow. I admit The sentences themselves are complex, but the paragraphs are easy. Here's how it goes down, just for those of you who want to know. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for the apostles. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for future believers. So that's where we're going to be over the next three weeks. We want to see what was on Jesus' mind, what was for himself, for the apostles, for his future followers, And and what I want you to catch here, especially in this introduction to John 17, is that what Jesus is doing is he is praying out loud in light of everything he's taught. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, his farewell discourse, preparing them for his death and departure, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. They could see him do this. They were there and said, and then he prays. Now, I want you to get that Jesus is praying out loud. Like they, how otherwise did he write this down? Like they heard what he was praying. He wanted them to see inside his heart. He knew that this prayer would prepare them to understand the significance of what he was about to do. And what I want you to catch particularly is that he is praying in light of the hour that has come. We've been out of John for a little while, and so it'd be natural for us to ask, um, and Father, the hour has come. What hour? What time? What time has come? What hour has come? Well, you read through the book of John. This is fun. I did it. It takes 10 minutes. Look up the word hour in the book of John up to this point and just follow it. Jesus has said multiple times up to this point that there is an hour coming 
in which he was going to shine and be put on display. But here's what we know about this hour. It's likely going to be something that's going to cause him to die. Remember those times when Jesus is teaching in the temple this really bold stuff about his authority and about how he's on equal plane with the Father and like people were trying to arrest him? And it says basically that he evaded their arrest because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not... It wasn't time for him to die yet. Now he is saying, my hour has come. It is time for me to die. And in light of that, I'm going to pray for some stuff. There, I have some needs. And the prayer here in verses 1 through 5 just simply stated is that he himself would be glorified. This is a prayer for Jesus to be glorified. And as we listen in to the son's dying prayer, we hear his heart for his own death, that it'll spotlight some things for us that we'll disclose And it's intended to capture our own hearts. It's a prayer for Jesus' glory. And I get it. Before we jump into these, like, it's kind of weird to think, oh, Jesus prays for his own glory? Seems a little selfish. Why why would he pray that he would be glorified? Well, I think first, friends, we need to remember what the word glory actually means. By the way, Have any of you used the word glory in a sentence this week outside of reading the Bible? Yeah, I didn't think so. Like, (laughs) it is not something that we normally use. It almost sounds like Christianese. Uh, Glorify me. Glorify the Father. The word glory just basically means uh, to shine forth. To shine forth. When we're talking about Jesus being glorified, we're talking about him. Again, I'm using a modern American idiom here. Jesus shining, Jesus being put on display, Jesus being in the spotlight, Jesus being the star of the show. The the Old Testament word for glory meant weight or heaviness. It was Hebrew, kavod. And they used the word weight because, like, if you were a wealthy guy, you didn't have a lot of paper money. You had a lot of, like, gold and assets. You had a lot of physical property. Like, you were a significant, weighty individual And so that would be something that would be ascribed to kings. Like powerful kings had taken over multiple kingdoms. They had a lot of stuff. They were kavod. They were heavy. They were glorious. And so also, like you start to ascribe that to the king of kings, to the lord of lords, and you're thinking, man, he shines. He's got some stuff. Like he is is radiant. Like he is significant. To ascribe him glory is to recognize how weighty he is. And then in the New Testament, that same concept gets used, but from a Greek word. The Greek word literally meant to shine, to shine. It's that which, you know, we say like, man, she really shines in this or that area. Like we're talking about someone's glory, what makes them stand out for good. So when Jesus here is praying that he would be glorified, he's praying that he would be recognized for his greatness, for his goodness. And that's the point. Jesus' death on the cross was to be a special means of him receiving glory, a special way in which he would look good. He not only prays for it in verse 1, but look down at verse 5. He prays the same thing. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So that's the point. Jesus is asking God in his death 
to shine. And as he shines, it will disclose two wonderful things about our God that could capture our imaginations. The first one is that the death of Jesus spotlights or shines on the Father's eternal love. The Father's eternal love. Through the death of Jesus, we see something shining. That something is none other than the Father's eternal love. Notice this. It's it's complex. We'll get through it. He prays, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Notice that. God, make me look good in death, but not for myself, but so that you would look good, O Father, in death. And then he gives a parallel. Like, if you'll make me look good in death so that you will look good, I want you to know that I will take that privilege that you bestow upon me and I will point it back to you. Now, this is tough. Because you start reading verse 2, and it's kind of like our minds don't have the capacity to hold on to the first thought and get the second thought. Have you ever heard that riddle? I've no, I, I forgot the whole story, but I just remember like the key question. This man's father is my father's son. Brothers and sisters, I have none, but this man's father is my father's son. Please don't try to think about that during the service. <laughs> but I dare you, before lunch, to try to figure that out. Because what happens if you don't start writing it out, you start thinking through family genealogies, and your mind can't actually get to the end of that without tracing the thing out. What we have here in this sentence is something that, like, it's a little bigger than what our minds could typically grasp. There's a lot going on. Let me just kind of visualize it for you for a second. Over here on this side of the prayer, like, the main thing Jesus is asking for is to be glorified, to look good, so that the Father will look good when he dies. When the Son dies, he wants the Father to look good. But then Jesus, in praying this, is going to give a parallel For for him, prayer is a conversation. He's talking to God, and he's saying, God the Father, it would make sense that you would glorify me in death so that I could glorify you because on the other side of things over here, when you last entrusted me with a privilege, I used that privilege for your ultimate good as well. Now, here's here's the alternate. This is the, the parallel that he gives. He says, Since, or just as, you have given him authority over all flesh, him being Jesus, you gave him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Here's what went on. Jesus is saying, remember in eternity past, when you decided to entrust me with all authority over everyone who would be created. And like, hypothetically, we're thinking like, yes, the Father remembers that. Jesus said, here's what I did with that. I came down and I took that authority and I used it to give eternal life to everybody that you told me to give it to. I used it to take all those that you had entrusted to my care and to give them eternal life. And that was what you wanted. You wanted eternal life for them. And what is eternal life? It's not quantity of life. We've already seen that in the book of John. It is quality of life. It's a relationship with God. He says eternal life is this, to know the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
Not just to know intellectually, that's an English rendering of the word, but to know experientially, to know relationally. What does Jesus say? Follow the picture. I'm sorry it's advanced. This is our Lord talking. Glorify me in death so that you would be glorified. Give me this privilege so that I could pass it on to you. Just like when eternity passed, when you gave me your authority and said, go get these people and give them eternal life so that they could be in relationship with me, and I did it. I came down here, and I have so far up to this point used my authority, not for myself, but to secure people for your pleasure, O oh God. I've come down here for you. I was trying to explain this uh, to someone the other day, and I wanted to use the parallel of uh, someone working at a, a business. It was funny. It was my barber. He asked me what I was, um, what I was preaching on Sunday. I'm like, well, that's a great question. <laughs> and uh, he is, I think he's converted. He's never been discipled all that well. And so he was really intrigued by this text. So I read it to him. And uh, he's trying to, like, wrap his mind. And you see, he was stunned. I'm telling you, for 30 minutes, like, he could have really messed up my hair. But, like, he was... <laughs> He just couldn't figure out, like, why would the son pray? Why would he talk to him in this way? And he finally got it, and we, we worked on this, this analogy together. All analogies fall short. But you know what it's like if you've ever worked for your father in his business before, as I have, to be entrusted with a significant amount of capital or resources. Like, that's a privilege. You got entrusted with the stuff that you needed, like the nice company truck, for example. And you use that not for yourself to go mudding in, in, in unpaved parking lots. But you used it to get the job done. And in doing that, you made the father look good and you got to enjoy the privilege. In a similar way, what, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm asking for resources, glorify me in this death so that you would be glorified. Just as when you entrusted authority to me, I used it to bring people into eternal life so that you can enjoy relationship with them as you chose to do back in eternity past. Y'all getting it? I didn't even write this out, guys. Like, it's so hard. I'm like, I have to see people's faces. But here's what I want you to get. Here's the big deal. Ready? Jesus would shine in such a way in his death that it would reveal that it was God the Father's heart all along to bring people into relationship with himself. The cross, more than any other thing, reveals the heart of God. It tells us what he's like. The cross is where God shines. It's where his glory is put on display. If someone were to ask you, if someone were to ask you tomorrow, what's your God like? What's your God like? What would you say? Like if, if somebody were to ask me, hey, what's, what's your wife like? You know, like these days I actually have a phone with thousands of pictures on it. You know, back in the day, though, we used to have a wallet and we only had a few pictures. And those pictures were heavily guarded. You know, all right, if this is going to be the one that you show your buddies, it has to be one that I approve of. And so we had these approved pictures of what our wife looked like so that, you know, it passed the test. It'd be a fair representation of what she's like. When somebody asks you what your God is like, what picture do you pull out of the wallet? 
Some of us are like, oh, he's the creator. Don't you look around this beautiful world and see everything that he's done? He's the ruler. He's in charge of everything. Like, man, this could have, like, spun off into, like, the ice ages, and, like, he keeps it all together, that he's the sustainer. Or do we hold up the cross? This is what my God's like. He sent his son to bleed and die for those who rebelled against him. It's the best picture I've got. That's where he shines. That's why Wesley would say, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? There was something unique about that. The son is saying here, make me look good in this picture of death so that you may look good, so that that eternal life that you planned in eternity past could finally be consummated and enjoyed so that the active obedience that I obey on their behalf like, can be applied to them so that the death that they deserve to die can be outlasted by me. May they see your love and your grace. People sometimes uh, give John Calvin a negative rap for whatever reason. I get it. He did some things historically that would embarrass many of us. But one of the things you cannot deny about Calvin is that hands down, he was probably, you think of him as a theologian, but he was probably the greatest expositor of the last 500 years. Like the guy knew how to get to the point of a text, and that's why he was such a good theologian. Listen to his summary of what's going on here. Like, I'm telling you, I'm struggling. Let me tell you somebody who figured it out about 400 years ago. This is beautiful. He says, In the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all the creatures, indeed, both high and low, the glory of God shines. But nowhere has God's glory shone more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifested. Sin has been blotted out. Salvation has been restored to men. It's the best theater to see the acts of God. God's holiness is on display because you see how much he hates sin. God's justice is on display because he actually satisfies that payment. And God's mercy and grace are on display because he's doing it on behalf of those who could not pay for it themselves. Like everything amazing that you could think about with God, you could see in the cross. The, the glory of Christ's death points to the eternal love of the Father. This was his plan long ago. Man, that'll help you, friends, with your anxiety and your insecurities. <laughs> so, no, mission accomplished. God took care of him. Can I use uh, some heavy theological language for the 30 of you who would actually care? I, it's terms that I'm not, I'm telling you, like I've, God's given me some capacities in the text. I'm not as good at theology as I want to be. Theology is when you try to put the whole Bible together. One of the, the theological concepts that I never really thought through that much before is, is what uh, some of the old school Puritans used to call uh, the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Now that's differentiated from the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is God's relational agreement to come into relationship with us when we believe in Jesus. 
The covenant of redemption is different. The covenant of redemption is this agreement between the Father and the Son in eternity past to accomplish salvation for all who would believe. Now, I don't normally think of that. Like, I, I, I just think, like, I think of, like, when the world started. But, like, you ever wonder, like, hey, what was God doing before the world was created? Well, here's what we know. At some point in eternity past, the Father and the Son had talked together and agreed that they would save mankind. The Father said, I'll send them. The Son said, I'll go. The Father said, if you go, I'll be pouring out my full wrath. There's no cheap way around this. And the Son says, I'll pay it. And the two of them together agree to accomplish redemption on behalf of people who weren't even created yet. And here's the deal. Sometimes we get so tempted to be thinking about, did I hold up my end of this salvation bargain? And what the glory of the cross says is, hey, the Father planned it, the Son paid for it, it's settled. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know if, that's, if I'm one of those people? Well, the prayer makes it clear. This is really cool. Because he says in verses 6 and 8, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours there were, you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now look at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. Belief! <laughs> How do you know you believe it? You, you trust it. You're, you're like, I ain't got nothing else. I've got to depend on him. That's how you know you're the elect. You know what the the non-elect do? They're still trying to figure out how they can pay for it on their own or how somebody else can pay for it. And yet here, what's made crystal clear is that the Father and the Son, they've got this thing. God's eternal plan has been accomplished. This is great news. And we should be so happy to turn our eyes from our own defects to the perfect obedience of Jesus and the plan of God the Father. This is not yours. This is something from eternity past that God has planned and and bloomed to fruition in the cross. Like, that's when it all happened. Have any of you ever seen a century plant? It only blooms once every hundred years. It's a rather ugly thing. Um, when it's just in its kind of normal stage. And yet, once it reaches the 100-year mark, this fascinating shoot will go about 20 feet into the air and bloom all kinds of flowers around it. Like, people literally, like, sit around and they will throw a party for the bloom of a century plant. (laughs) Why? Because it's so long in the making. Like, this bloom finally flowers, but here's the thing, it dies. I want you to think about something for a second. I want your mind to hurt. In eternity past, God set up this plan for his love to bloom in a special way. And it would take who knows how many years. I don't even know how to quantify eternity past. But it finally came to bloom at the cross with our Lord Jesus. Not only does the death of Jesus spotlight the Father's eternal love, but it also spotlights something else. And that is the Son's 
ultimate glory. Jesus prays for it to be glorified, and in one way he wants that glory to, to showcase the Father's eternal love. In another sense, though, Jesus is praying in such a way because he wants to enjoy the glory, the renown, the praise that he had in all of eternity past. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's take one problem at a time. The first one is this. Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you sent me to do. Now, let's do a little bit of chronology here. Jesus is saying, all right, I finished the work, but he hasn't done the work yet. <laughs> uh, what's going on? How in the world has Jesus already finished everything, but he hasn't come to do the thing that he came to do, which was to die? This is pretty simple. Jesus knows that this is a fate accompli. It is done. It is already in motion. Judas has already left. The wheels of motion, I mean, of execution are already moving. There is no getting out of it. That's why he says, my hour has come, not it's about to come. It's already happening. Like if we were to take the camera and point it away from Jesus praying at this moment and simultaneously live stream over there to where Judas is with the high priests, like the deal's already going down. The location has already been disclosed. He's on his way to die. And what he's saying is, Father, I'm done. I've done, I mean, I've put everything in motion that you've told me to do. I've taught the things you told me to do. I've displayed the miracles you wanted me to display. And now I have arranged to die in such a way that this gift of redemption would, is, is signed, sealed, delivered. It is on its way. And in light of that, in light of the fact that I've done what we agreed to do in eternity past, now, Father, glorify me, not just on the cross, but notice this, through the cross, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do we realize that Jesus left glory, if you will, to enter humanity, and he's asking to be glorified again? Now, again, we don't use glory language, but some of you come from small towns elsewhere, and maybe wherever you came from, you were a big deal. But then you come to a new place and nobody knows you. And you're not a big deal anymore. You had glory. You divested yourself of such glory to go to a place where you were unknown, unappreciated. In fact, I say this to hurt all of our feelings and to encourage us to be more kind to service workers, but I overheard some service workers the other day talking about uh, someone at a valet like they were parking cars, and they called the guy um, a pip. Does anybody know what that is? This is service industry talk. A previously important person. They're all over Naples. Somebody used to be a big deal somewhere. They came down here. They're not a big deal anymore, but they want to be. Jesus is not just a previously important person. He is a perpetually important person. And yet when he entered into his humanity, his glory was hidden. Speaking of, of mudding with the company vehicle, imagine this brand new, shiny, nice car being covered with mud. 
It doesn't look new and shiny and nice, but it's still under there. Jesus like, took on humanity. He took on flesh. And you couldn't see his glory shining in the same way he says, and I want it to shine. I want it to shine not only in death, but I want it to shine beyond death to the degree that the death would be so satisfying that I would be vindicated, that I would be like raised again from the dead and received into your presence. That I would be so obedient to you, O God, that you would receive this and that you would show me to be who I really am. And here's the crazy thing. He would not do that by taking off the mud. Jesus is forever Jesus. He is human. (laughs) Truly God, truly man for all eternity. I think some of us get our our Christology messed up a little bit. We're like, oh, well, Jesus temporarily became a man, and then, well, at some point he went to heaven, and we don't have to have these these sinful bodies anymore. And Jesus still has a body. (laughs) And yet that body has been glorified like to such a degree that God was like, you're with me. You're coming up with me. The prayer was answered. C.S. Lewis, with his beautifully imaginative mind, said it this way. He likened Jesus' plunge to that of a man diving. Think about it. He was in, in glory in eternity. He imagined it as one diving from great heights into a dark pool. And as the diver is suspended in the air, he forms a colorful figure, but as he parts the waters... He rushes down through the green and warm water to black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then back up again to color and light. You get the picture? Jesus is saying, may I shine once more, having gone down to the depths, may you bring me back up so that I would be glorious again. Let me shine, truly shine, truly God, truly man. May I truly shine. Nail scarred hands, scarred side and all. God, may I shine in my ruling, in my reigning, in my resplendence, in my returning. May, may people be rightfully enamored with who I am. That, that's what he wants through the cross. And that's why the resurrection matters. How easy it is for us, isn't it, friends, to explain the gospel when we say stuff like, hey, Jesus died for your sins, and we just leave him dead. Don't you want to believe? He died for you. Like, huge mistake. Yeah, he died for you. But he rose again. Like, he rose again showing that he was who God said he is. Like, if he just died, I would have thought, well, that's nice. But, like, he really was the son of God who conquered. He outlasted death. Like, the stuff's been paid for. It's good. Like, life has happened, and there's a glory in that. And we should be enamored with it. That's why it says in Philippians 2, when it describes the descent of Christ, it says that he, he was willing like, to give up you know, this status with God and to come and enter into humanity, but not just any humanity, but to be a slave and not just any slave, but an obedient one to the point of death. Like It goes down, 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 and then it says, Therefore, God has, therefore, in light of that, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. 
We worship and praise Jesus because he outlasted death and God did answer his prayer and put him on display as the one who is worthy of all our affection and adoration. This should captivate our hearts. Not just ask it. Don't worry, I'm done. But I'll just ask it this way. What truly captivates our hearts, our minds, both individually and as a church? I mean, ask yourself this question. This might not be the one to ask with somebody over coffee. This might be the one to ask yourself with an open journal. What do I find glorious? Like so shiny, so beautiful that you don't want to stop looking at it. You know what that's like. Individually, you see a, a stunning mountain vista on vacation, and you like pull the car over. You're like, wow, wow. And you're driving up the Blue Ridge Parkway, and all of a sudden it's another one of those vista points. And you're like pulling the car over again. You're like, man, there's another one. It just, like, it just captivates your imagination. You, you can't get enough of it. I've been in Naples seven years now. I am still not tired of seeing the sunset at the beach. Every time. I'm like, this is stunning. I, I can't get it. I, I would look at it all the time. But it only lasts that short window. Then I've got to go back the next day. Some people find nature stunning and glorious. Some people find well-decorated houses stunning and glorious. Some people find burgeoning investment portfolios stunning and gorgeous. Some people find fitness goals stunning and gorgeous. What I'm asking is, do you find the Lord Jesus stunning and glorious? I ask that of you individually. But I also ask that of us corporately. This question what do we find as a church stunning and glorious, beautiful, can't take our eyes off of it? Let me tell you some things that we can get our eyes on from time to time that aren't Jesus. Things that can stun us, things that we think are beautiful and glorious but pale in comparison to him. A full building, a busy calendar, a particular denominational or institutional tie, a warm vibe, energetic and engaging music, a number of churches planted or a number of missionaries sent out. Do you see how all those things are stunning and glorious in their own right? Like, oh man, that's awesome. That would be great. That would be great. But the question would be, does what captivates our collective imagination, like is it actually Jesus over and above all the other markers or indicators of church success? Isn't it fascinating that Paul would say to the Corinthians who were so enamored with personalities and their own little programs, like, hey guys, do you remember that I preached nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified? Like, that's all we got. I'm just going to keep pointing to a crucified Jesus risen again. Like, that's where it's at. Sorry to use Lewis again, but I, I, I can never escape his words from the weight of glory where he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires for all this other stuff not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Does Christ crucified captivate our imaginations? I leave you with these words from this old, dead preacher. Scottish guy named John Flavel. He, um, he wrote what sounds like the most boring book of all time. Here's, here's the title. The Fountain of Life, a display of Christ in his essential and mediatorial glory. Not going to be on the New York Times bestseller list anytime soon. I get it. But listen to how he describes his book. Like just, just use this as a parallel. Just say, like, am I this captivated? There is no doctrine more excellent in itself or more necessary to be preached and studied than the doctrine of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All other knowledge, how much soever it be magnified in the world, is to be esteemed but dross in comparison of the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is the very marrow and kernel of all the Scriptures and the scope and center of all divine revelations. The right knowledge of Jesus Christ, like a clue, leads you through the whole labyrinth of the Scriptures. Just a few more lines. He says, The study of Jesus Christ is the most noble subject that ever a soul spent itself upon. Those that rack and torture their brains upon other studies, like children, weary themselves at a low game. The angels study this doctrine and stoop down to look into this deep abyss. What are the truths discovered in Christ but the very secrets that from eternity lay hid in the bosom of God? He concludes with this, Let all that mind the honor of religion or the peace and comfort of their own souls wholly sequester and apply themselves to the study of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The things which singly ravish and delight the souls of men are all found conjunctly in Christ. And from the knowledge of Jesus Christ do bud forth all the fruits of comfort and that for all seasons and conditions. <laughs> I hear that, I'm like, man, I, I wish I was that fascinated. And I can be. And you can be. What does it? We just got to look at the right spot. It'd be like me taking you to the Naples sunset and you looking at the stinking houses behind. Yeah, they're all right. But that sunset's something else. Friends, we can get ourselves to church, but like the question is, once we get together, where are we pointing one another's gaze? And ask people like, are you reading your Bible? Okay, what are you reading when you read your Bible? More rules, more tips and tricks for the sanctified life? I mean, like, what are you doing with your Bible? You ask people, well, how's your prayer life going? I didn't ask if you were working through your prayer list. Like, are you praising Jesus for who he is? Are you excited about what he's done? 
I think a sign, a sign that we're kind of looking at the wrong things is the fact that, like, some people, like when we put communion on the schedule, nobody's ever said this. I can just see it in your face. Like, oh, my goodness, we've got, I'm going to get to lunch, and we've got communion. You know what communion is? It is another visible indicator of Christ broken and bleeding for your justification. It is him and him crucified. And frankly, I'm a little confused why we only do it once a month, but that's another conversation for another day. But think about that. That's where we have to be. And that's not only good for our own souls, but friends, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You long to disciple your children. You long to evangelize your community. You want to reach the lost. Stop trying to argue with them about evolution and creation and politics and everything. Like, can you please, we, we please get to Christ and Him crucified? So often I hear of people who are offended at like a supposed gospel presentation, but they're not offended at the cross. They're offended because somebody was trying to convince them of something that could only be understood after submitting to Christ as Lord. If I give examples, I will fall short. We have to stop. But here's the deal. The question that I would ask us is, how many people are we getting to that as the center of the truth? That they need? Like We're showing up like the picture out of the wallet. Like, look at my God crucified for you should you believe. And I apply that to all of you who may be here today. It's a full room. I'm happy to have so many guests here. But I would ask you this. How do you know? How do you know if you're one of the ones for whom Jesus died? The question is this. Do you want a relationship with him? Do you have a relationship with him through faith in Jesus alone? I love the idea of Jesus saying, hey, you sent me and gave me our authority so that they may have eternal life. And what is eternal life? That they know you, the only true God. You're in a relationship with God by faith. Not have you done the right amount of religious rituals. Not have you cleaned up your life enough. Not have you made the right spiritual connections. The question is, are you relying upon Jesus Christ and Him alone and through that enjoying relationship with God. If you're not, I would invite you into that. If you have questions about that or that's confusing, talk to somebody around you before you leave today. But our aim, our goal in finishing out this time together is pretty simple. It is that God would take this text and keep us near the cross. I end with these words from the old hymn I used to sing as a kid all the time. We're not singing it today, but I'll read you these now. And we close. And I'll change it to plural. Jesus, keep us near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be our glory ever. Till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. I just... I love that. Fanny Crosby, she can't see, she's blind, and yet all of her hymns deal with sight. <laughs> she's saying, God, keep me near the cross. May I see Jesus bleeding, dying. May that be my 
glory. That is what I long for. May that be ours as well. Let's pray, and then we'll praise our God for what he's done for us on the cross. Father in heaven, you have shown yourself glorious by sending your Son to be the sacrifice for our sins, and we have been so enamored with other things. We confess and forsake those and trust that as we've been exposed to your word once more, that you would turn our eyes evermore to our Lord Jesus to see him glorious in his death and glorious through his death and his resurrection. Or captivate our hearts with Jesus. If there are those who are here even now, blind to the beauties of Jesus, deaf to the melody of the gospel, open their ears, open their eyes, that they may see, turn from their sin, and trust in Jesus alone. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen.